Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's 25 years of puppies behind bars, and we talk to them about their amazing dogs and their prison connection. Plus, we talk to three local police departments in eastern Connecticut who all have a puppies behind bars comfort dog. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We are a nation of animal lovers, and for many years now, dogs have not only been our pets growing up and through our adult lives, but they also work with us, guide us if we are blind, and can even find us if we are lost in search and rescue situations. And for one organisation for the last 25 years, they have been training dogs to help us, using the skills of prison inmates to make that happen. I caught up recently with Gloria Gilbert Stoger, president and founder of the organization Puppies Behind Bars, to find out more. Gloria, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brian. So 25 years of Puppies Behind Bars. One, congratulations. And secondly, how did it all start? Um, Thank you for the congratulations. It literally does not seem like 25 years at all. It started with my reading an article about a veterinarian in Florida who started the first prison program in the country where inmates were raising guide dogs for the blind. And I thought it was a brilliant idea, researched it, met him. And then two years later, still thought it was a brilliant idea and decided I would try my hand at something similar in New York. Why use inmates? I mean, it's very interesting. Obviously, it works. You've been doing it for 25 years. And like you said, another organization. So what's the rationale with using inmates? Um, I think initially for that veterinarian, the rationale was that these were people who had time on their hands and could raise a dog successfully. For puppies behind bars, for me, the rationale was there were, when we started in 1997, there was a shortage of guide dogs. There there was a need for guide dogs, but I also felt and still feel that people who are incarcerated should have an opportunity to contribute to society if they so choose. And, And puppies behind bars affords them that opportunity. And how do they feel about it? Because, you know, knowing that they have to give the dog up, that must be quite wrenching because, you know, I'm an animal owner, I've got a dog and and I love her to death. So, I mean, how difficult is it for them? They love their dogs to death. It is definitely difficult, but a, a couple of things. One, they know going into it under no circumstances are they keeping the dog. Two, they are doing it 100% for somebody else, and they know that. So the dog is always, always, always going to go on to another person. Three, they feel that when their dog leaves prison, part of them walks out of that gate with them. Interestingly, the programs that you have, if I've got this right, you've got three types of programs, uh, service dogs for veterans, service dogs for first responders, and explosive detection canine program. Let's start with that one because that one seems very different to the other two. It is. And it grew completely out of the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th. I live 
in New York, seeing what happened to my city on the 11th of September, 2001, shook me as it did every other New Yorker and every American to my core. And I resolved to do something to help law enforcement, which flooded the city in that aftermath to keep us safe. And what we, Puppies Band Bars, could do was help provide explosive detection canines to law enforcement because all of a sudden, explosive detection canines were needed around the world. So there was a need that puppies filled. And that's that's exactly how we started with the explosive detection canine program. Our working with veterans grew out of the same need. The United States invaded Iraq and then invaded Afghanistan. All of a sudden, we had Americans coming home with physical and um, psychological wounds. And puppies behind bars said, what can we do to help this population that's fighting to to help our country? And so we stopped raising guide dogs for the blind and we started raising service dogs exclusively for Iraq and Afghanistan war vets. And then after the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, I just said to myself, my God, those first responders on the scene, I mean, what they must have witnessed in that elementary school, horrible isn't even the right word. Is there anything that puppies can do to help people who do go to the scenes of mass shootings, which are so prevalent in this country? And out of that was born the let's um, donate and provide service dogs to first responders. And let's get to that as well. I mean, you know, three amazing programs that you do. I mean, how are these dogs paid for? They're paid for by private funds. Americans are an extremely generous group body of people. And I think people love the idea. I I can't tell you how many times people say to me, it's a win-win that the incarcerated individuals are doing something to earn marketable skills, to contribute to society. The recipients of the dogs get these incredible, incredibly well-trained, well-loved dogs free of charge. So I think people respond. I think the public responds to puppies band bars because they feel that they're getting a double bang for their buck, if you will. Now, my understanding is that even though, as you just said, you know, these dogs are paid for through generous donations, the dogs, even when they go to like a veteran or a first responder, they still sort of belong to puppies behind bars in a way because you keep a check on them, don't you? Just talk to us about that because their well-being is also important to you throughout their life. In our 25 years, dogs really have always come first. And I'm not saying that humans are not important, but we've kept our eye on our dogs. We retain ownership of our dogs for life in the event that someone can no longer keep one of our dogs, or if someone's lifestyle changes and they're not giving the dog the quality of life that they should be giving the dog, then puppies will take the dog back and and we will find a perfect, loving, forever home for that dog. So our relationship with our dogs is very, very important to us. We take it very seriously and we do not want to relinquish control over our dogs. I want to pick up uh, particularly on the service dogs for first responders. I mean, we've heard about uh, veterans, obviously, having service dogs uh, for a while but you were mentioning obviously this uh, this new niche as it were for first responders a lot of police departments and I believe that six here in Connecticut have got service dogs at three joined fairly recently and they were all brothers tell us a little bit more about that because it's a very heartwarming story and and also it puts our police in a very different light doesn't it we don't have a 
great name for it. So we call them department dogs. Our first dog went to a police department in August of 2019. The premise being that a dog in a police department who who works with a particular officer can improve community relations between the community and the cop and can also help provide wellness to officers who are feeling stressed. Um, it's not a secret that being a cop in America today is, is not, it's never an easy job, but it's even tougher right now. And relations between the public and police are at a pretty low point. So if a cop is walking down the street with a beautiful, friendly, outgoing, incredibly well-trained Labrador by his or her side, that police officer certainly is going to be more approachable. All of a sudden, you can go up to the cop and say, why do you have that Labrador? Why do you have that dog? Or I've got a dog at home that looks just like that dog. It opens communication between the public and police officers. And then some of our police departments use the dogs primarily for officer wellness, which is the dogs go to the police department and they're there. And if an officer is feeling stressed, is feeling suicidal, they can talk to the dog or they can talk to a peer support counselor with a dog present. And it's easier for somebody lots of times to open up to a dog than it is to open up to a human. You're very much obviously hands-on as part of the training of these beautiful animals. just want to ask you this question. Obviously, when it comes to police officers and police departments that have these dogs, they have to come uh, meet the dog and they go through training. Do they actually enter the prison system uh, as well for a short period of time uh, You know, to, to meet and greet the dog? How does that work? They do. And it's for me, it's one of the most rewarding aspects of our work. Because of COVID, our our training is 14 days long, COVID or no COVID. Because of COVID, there was a period where our trainings had to be remote, but the incarcerated individuals were the ones via video teaching the police officers directly. And pre-COVID and once when there was a break in COVID, we do go into prison. So you've got active duty cops going into maximum and medium security prisons in New York State, training directly with incarcerated individuals, taking instruction from incarcerated individuals, learning from incarcerated individuals. And why that aspect is the most favorite part of my work, as I said, is because both sides see each other not as monolithic groups, but they see each other as individuals and they find common ground with each other. And it's just something that everybody benefits. If there's an incarcerated individual who by definition was arrested by a police officer, by a law enforcement agent, if you've got an incarcerated individual who says, wow, that cop is actually a human being. That cop is actually really likable and says that in phone calls home to their families. And conversely, if you've got a cop saying, wow, that incarcerated individual has spent two years training this dog, is giving this dog up to me, has spent 14 days training me, they see each other in different lights. And the cop also then calls home at night to the family and says, 
you wouldn't believe it, but I just spent the day in prison and it was extraordinary. So it's breaking down of barriers and that's a lot of what Puppies does. And I, I just love that aspect of it. These are amazing stories and an amazing organization. Gloria Gilbert Stoger, president and founder of Puppies Behind Bars. We wish you many, many more years of success. And thank you for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you for having me. So that's Gloria's story. But what about the police officers who have these amazing dogs? In Connecticut, many police departments are taking up the opportunity to have a service dog. And here in eastern Connecticut, we have three. Joining me to talk more about them is Officer Heather McClelland from Town of Groton Police, Officer Eric Fredericks from Waterford Police, and Officer Craig Scheel from Colchester Police. To all three of you, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Brian. So all three of you have service comfort dogs. Heather, I wanted to talk to you first because out of the three police departments, you had the the service dog first. How did it come about? Well, I actually met Gloria Gilbert Stoga a few years ago at a symposium at New York City Police Department on suicide awareness and prevention for police officers. It was kind of a, a big topic that year. And she happened to have a couple of the dogs with her from Puppies Behind Bars. And, you know, I started talking to her and said, you know, hey, I'm kind of in charge of the officer wellness program at my police department. And, you know, I don't have PTSD myself. I don't need a dog for my own personal use. But I think that um, having one of your dogs would be fantastic for our police department, our first responders and and the rest of our town. And and she was on board. So that was great. Just explain to us a little bit more, because we want to get this across that the dogs are not your typical police dogs. They are there for, as you said, officer wellness. They're also there as part of community outreach. How important are both of those things? They're huge. I mean, you know, I, I think a well cop, a happy cop lends itself well to uh, good community interactions and, you know, being out there and representing our police departments well. So, you know, the police officers that, that we work with after time, we, we see a lot of things. We, we experience a lot of trauma throughout our careers. And, you know, having something as simple as a dog who can come in and, and just provide a little bit of relief for the folks that we work with. Uh, you know, I think it goes a long way in, in making sure that we're well and making sure that, you know, our, our community is is treated well as, uh, as well as that. I want to turn to Eric now. And of course, uh, Waterford PD isn't too far away from town of Groton. Eric, you've had Hodges, your service comfort dog now for a little over a month. Heather was sort of very much part of why Waterford decided to get you know, Hodges. Explain that to us. And and how has Hodges also gone down with the force and obviously the community? Yeah, Heather was definitely instrumental in us getting a dog. What happened is our administration attended an event that Heather and some of the other handlers ran. And we've learned about the program and we've always, our department has always big, been big into community engagement. So we thought this was just another resource for community building and of course, officer wellness as well. But along the lines with Hodges, it's been going great. Hodges is definitely coming out of his shell more with the officers walking around, you know, greeting officers, going to their desks. When I lose sight of Hodges, I always find him at a different officer under a different officer's desk, like getting belly rubs. So he's definitely coming out of his shell. He's definitely doing his service as an officer wellness dog. And then we've done numerous visits to senior centers, to pre-K events where he's interacted with people of all ages and even some victims. And he's definitely, you know, done his role greatly helping people deal with stress. 
And Craig, I want to turn to you, obviously, up there in the Colchester area of uh, Eastern Connecticut. You have Skipper, which is actually one of two brothers. The other one, of course, is Hodges, who we've uh, just spoken to Eric about. And then we've got Jules, who is a comfort service dog down in Southern Connecticut State University. Tell us a little bit about obviously Skipper, because Skipper goes to to schools quite a bit, doesn't he? Yeah. So our program is a little bit unique. I'm currently assigned to the school resource officer position within our police department. So I cover four schools from K through 12. And so Skipper comes with me to school every day. And, uh, you know, our enrollment is uh, around 700 students just at the high school. He gets to interact with lots of young people every day, everything from friendly visits to comforting a student that's having a crisis situation. So he's been warmly welcomed by all the students and faculty, and he's definitely a star. And how's it been for you as well? Because each of you, just so that people are fully understanding of the situation, these dogs go home with you. They live with you. They are your partners as well. They are actual police officers. So Craig, for you, I mean, how's it been having this great partner uh, become part of your life? It's been amazing. I'm married and I have two kids and we have another personal dog that we we had before Skipper and he's been welcomed by by everybody and my children love him and my wife bonded to him extremely quickly. So it's, it's always funny now when I get home from work and if everybody's home in the house, you know, I don't only hear the, uh, the greetings for daddy, but I hear the greetings for Skipper and, and he appreciates that just as much as I do. The other thing I want to ask all three of you as well, obviously all active serving police officers in our communities, for which obviously we're eternally grateful to all three of you. When you went as part of the training for each of these dogs, of course, it's an organization called Puppies Behind Bars and they are trained by inmates. What was it like for each of you actually stepping into you know, the prison environment, as it were, because I'm guessing that was a little bit different for each of you, was it? Yeah, it was it was a pretty amazing experience. I wasn't sure what to expect at first. I, I went into Bedford Hills, the female prison, uh, the women's prison in New York, and I actually got to, to work with the puppy raiser that that raised my dog. And so, you know, I think that while I tried to go in there with an open mind, you still have some, maybe some, some ideas of, of how you might feel about folks who are behind bars, but Um, I think what I found was that, you know, everybody's got their story. Everybody's got different things in their lives that have brought them to where they are. And it was really interesting to get to know some of the women that that were there, how they got there. So, you know, for me, it was it was a really eye opening experience. And I think I was able to bring back a a little bit more understanding to, you know, how I deal with people in in my job now, uh, knowing kind of the full circle of how things go after we arrest people. And Craig, what about you? Well, we were in, uh, Eric and I were in in the same team training and it was a little bit different for us because uh, of COVID precautions. Our training was virtual. So we were with Puppies Behind Bars staff, but we had to have a virtual training with the incarcerated individuals every day. So we didn't have that in-person face-to-face contact uh, that Heather was able to have. However, you know, we did have class every day, Monday through Friday with those individuals who led the trainings. And I'll, uh, I'll say I didn't really know what to expect going into it, but everybody was, you know, very enthusiastic and dedicated to the dogs and very professional. And we were able to take that, you know, very professional demeanor that we had on day one. And by the end of the two weeks, there was jokes, there was, you know, personal interaction and those dogs became 
a bridge between the police officers and our training and the incarcerated individuals. And that's exactly what they're designed to do. And Eric, I want to turn to you now, a a slightly different question. All of the dogs I understand have social media accounts and you all seem very active on them. Was that a requirement from puppies behind bars? And also because they have, you know, this instant attraction to people, do people see the dog before they see you? The social media was never a requirement from Puppies Behind Bars. Um, I know myself and Craig and um, Jules's handler, we kind of went on the coattails of Heather because she's doing so great with it. So it's just another resource to get the word out of what these dogs are about. And, you know, just interacting with the public, people already know him by his Instagram page. So it definitely is a helpful tool. And yeah, you're completely right. When I take him out in public, people sometimes don't even say hi to me. I just went to a coffee with a vet event before this interview and everyone's saying hi to Hodges, you know, greeting him, petting him like he's supposed to be doing. And then I would say like 10 minutes later, they're like, oh, hi, Officer Fredericks, things like that. But um, I'm definitely used to it, just like all the other handlers. We're pretty much these dog chauffeurs. So it's a great experience. Well, it's been great talking to all three of you, and it is amazing, an amazing organization. It's also great that uh, each of your police departments have taken up these uh, these dogs and that they're doing great things, not only for obviously for community outreach, but uh, most importantly as well for officer wellness. And we look forward to continuing to follow the stories of Hodges at Waterford, Chase at Town of Groton with Heather there, and also Skipper, obviously, with Craig. But to all of you, thank you for your continued service to the community and uh, obviously thank you to the three dogs as well and for being on Connecticut East this week. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Brian. And if you want to find out more about the Puppies Behind Bars organization and the work they do, then visit their website at puppiesbehindbars.com. The American Red Cross blood supply is at historically low levels this winter and we're facing a dangerous situation across the country. Without the blood they need, hospitals may be forced to make tough decisions about patient care. Donors are needed now to ensure blood is available for everyone who needs it, when they need it. The good news is, you can help. Make an appointment to give now. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Patients are counting on you. Tree damage caused by high winds, hurricanes, or stormy weather? Green Valley Tree has you covered. We offer emergency storm service for residential, commercial, and even municipalities. From full removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken and fractured limbs, no job too big or small. If you need immediate emergency service outside our regular business hours, call our emergency hotline at 860-966-5710 and visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for details of our other services. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. As Connecticut considers legalizing medical aid in dying for people with terminal illnesses, a new poll reveals voters are more likely to back candidates who support this option. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has more. 66% of voters in northeastern states said they would want the option of medical aid in dying if they were diagnosed with a terminal illness and of sound mind to make this decision. State Representative Jonathan Steinberg, who co-chairs the Public Health Committee, says it speaks to changing public sentiment on medical aid in dying. It's clear that the majority of Connecticut citizens understand it and understand its limited applicability. None of them probably hope that they ever have to avail themselves of it. 
if they want to have a choice. In Connecticut, Senate Bill 88 was introduced this month and had a public hearing last week. Opponents say these laws violate the obligation of physicians to do no harm to patients. But about a dozen states have introduced similar legislation this year. I'm Emily Scott. Stone artifacts that date back 12,000 years have been found at a rare Paleo-Indian site in East Haddam. The site, which is on the grounds of the two Razzling Cats Coffee House and Cafe, has so far unearthed over 500 items. Sarah Sportman is the Connecticut State archaeologist and part of the team that's exploring the new site. We know that people in this time period were very mobile, that they lived a hunting-gathering lifestyle, that they moved around the landscape a lot and traveled great distances. But they didn't often stay in one place for very long, so to find one of these sites where people camped, you know, for a short period of time, 11 or 12,000 years ago, is really remarkable when you think about it. Sportman says it's rare to find sites like these as often they have been dug up over the years during large construction projects or eroded over time and washed away by storms. David Leslie is an archaeologist and part of the team exploring the new site and says they know it's Paleo-Indian origin because of the types of stone arrowheads they've been finding. And so we found 21 fragments of these concentrated in one area of the site indicating that between 11 and 13,000 years ago, this was an area where people sat down and made several spear points out of a different few different types of raw material too. So some of this raw material looks like it's coming from New York. Some of it is here locally in Connecticut as well. So that was a little bit surprising. Leslie says Paleo-Indians were nomadic, traveling frequently for hundreds of miles and were known to use the best materials for creating their tools and weapons they found during their travels. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, they have more than 50 state-certified police officers between them, as well as a fleet of cruisers, holding cells for suspects, a firearms training range and an automated fingerprinting system. But what police at the sovereign nation reservations of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation and its neighbouring Mohegan tribe don't have is the power to issue pistol permits to their residents, as is granted to every municipal department in the state. A proposed bill before the General Assembly would change that and was the Subject of a public hearing recently before the Legislators' Public Safety and Security Committee. The proposed bill would eventually be put to a vote of the Public Safety Committee whether to send it to the House and Senate for debate and possible approval. In the day this week, Stonington Planning and Zoning Commission voted unanimously recently to implement a six-month moratorium on accepting applications to open cannabis businesses in town. The moratorium is designed to give the Commission and its staff time to research, develop and implement specific zoning regulations for cannabis retailers and producers. Stonington joins other communities in Connecticut that already have adopted moratoriums to give them time to draft regulations. According to the state law that legalized the recreational use of marijuana and took effect July 1st last year, municipalities had the discretion to allow or prohibit cannabis businesses within their borders, regulate signs and operating hours, and develop specific regulations for such businesses. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, back when producer and writer Thomas Mercer started making his recently released movie, The Wider Legacy of Norwich-born Benedict Arnold, was that he abandoned the colonists' side in the American Revolution after being a successful general for the British. The movie, Benedict Arnold, Hero Betrayed, was released in November after being in production for 20 years. Mercer said the film aims for a more nuanced understanding of who Arnold was and what he means to Americans today. The team who worked on the movie say, however, they're also concerned with earning back the money spent on the film, as the film was only worked on when the money was available, 
and being independent filmmakers getting money as a non-profit rather than securing funding ahead of time, which explains the long production time. In the Middletown Press this week, new Connecticut housing permits approved in January were the most since January 2014. That's according to data released by the State Department of Economic and Community Development. The 454 new housing units approved in January were more than double the amount approved in January of 2021. New Haven led the 118 communities reporting in January with 132 units approved. Middlebury officials approved 30 new housing units and there were 18 permits issued in Shelton. New housing permits are considered a key economic indicator because moving into a new house or apartment is usually accompanied by purchases of so-called big-ticket items like consumer electronics and appliances. And in the Chronicle this week, the Russians' brutal invasion of democratic Ukraine has caused emotional reactions of condemnation and worry worldwide, including within the halls of academia. Local university professors and academics at the University of Connecticut and Eastern Connecticut State University said they are concerned about the well-being of Ukrainian citizens who are being killed in the fighting. Yukon doctoral candidate Vladimir Gupan hails from Ukraine and teaches the issues the country faces in his political science course at the Yukon Hartford campus. We are fighting back, he said. We are showing the world that Russia cannot defeat us. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.